The idea of invented traditions was coined by Eric Hobsbawm, who stated that many traditions we think of as old and noble are actually quite modern inventions. Hobsbawm gives the examples of martial arts in Japan, or Scottish clan tartan, which was created in the 19th century. This idea of invented traditions can be seen in many forms of life, and is often for exactly the same reason. It is to make something seem older than it is. In a way, it is to demand respect and fealty for a tradition. It is a purely political move. One of the deleted paragraphs from the football episode earlier in the series was about how football clubs tried to give themselves a more prestigious history and tradition. In France, for example, a football club called Paris Saint-Germain, or PSG, was founded in 1970 by several French businessmen who wanted to give Paris a major footballing club, with most football clubs being founded long before 1970, it was thought that PSG would need a major footballing rivalry to be seen as a proper football club. Thus, the owners of PSG and the owners of Marseille, the dominant French club, and the TV channel Canal Plus colluded to set up a rivalry between the two clubs. Called Le Classique, it was North versus South, capital against province, and yet the entire thing was invented by men in rooms who wanted to give their new club more tradition. Indeed, the idea of invented tradition has been pushed to explain the rise of the nation-state. Most European countries formed in their modern shape with the slow end of feudalism. But these quote-unquote countries were mere loose conglomerations of peoples. Most of France in the 15th and 16th century spoke regional languages like Breton or Gascon, and a variety of other smaller languages. French was only spoken by those in the north. Thus, the idea of being French itself had to be invented. France may have existed, but the French did not. The same can be said of many countries around the same time. England had many regional differences, Spain too. Indeed, Germany and Italy had so many that it took until the 1870s for these countries to be unified and then the traditions created around these nations. How far a country is invented is debatable, but all countries have some form of invention to them. Some countries have it through traditions and folklore, slowly evolving by way of natural selection. England has many traditions that is meant to bind the people together. Many of these die out when they cease to be useful and new ones created. The idea of Britain as a lone nation against Nazism, which only entered historiography in the 1960s and 1970s when the empire was collapsing, meant that Britain needed a new national myth, rather than an origin story denominated by talk of empire. This myth is now one of Britain's foundational ones, yet it is invented. Some countries have these traditions deliberately concocted. After Brazil declared independence from Portugal in 1838, the IHGB, Brazilian Institute of History and Geography, was set up. It was drawn mostly from court intellectuals 
and they met on Sundays to debate topics. Their aim was to construct a national history by choosing events that could be converted into national heroics. When the United States was founded, however, this is what makes it stand out. It was founded on the eventual tradition of a free place for all, religious pluralism and free enterprise and no aristocracy. Even if the United States has sometimes lapsed when defending its own foundations and, in the case of slavery, something it didn't pay attention to in its own foundational myths, it was still a remarkable invention. And, for the purposes of our podcast, it was an actual invention. The United States has grown to become the most powerful country the world has ever seen. Not only a military power, which is far larger than any other country, but its influence around the world. The United States has exported Western free democracy along its own Republican ideals. It has set down a rules-based economic order. It has promoted capitalism and many other things the world would be far off worse without. It may not have always lived up to these ideals, but the ideals were good. The importance of a country, however, may still need to be spelled out. A nation-state can provide things that is needed for people to do great things. It can provide great entertainment, great schools, and important infrastructure like roads and railways. The culture of a country can also help. Historically, China has often shied away from technological progress. But the culture of the United States has pushed for ever more and ever better technological progress. By my count, over half the inventions of my top 100 owe a major part of their development to the United States. Not bad for a country which has only been around since 1776. In this episode, we will be looking at how the United States became the country it is, and how its legacy makes it a great invention. How it became a country of liberty and freedom, of enterprise and business. To start this, we have to look at how the United States came about, from idea to inception. For a variety of reasons still debated by scholars, England was the primary force of commerce and trade in Europe during the 16th and 17th centuries. Reasons given have been as varied as the Magna Carta, common law, its island geography, or the lack of some natural resources which pushed it away from plunder and economic neglect by the aristocracy and meant that its economic life had to be more open and free. While, in 1492, Columbus was finding the New World, it was quickly discovered to be rich in diversity. Much of it was also rich in natural resources, especially South America. This gold was plundered from the south and shipped back to Spain and Portugal. This led to an exploration of North America by French, Spanish and English explorers trying to find rich Native American empires like that of the Aztecs, Mayas and Incas who had existed in the south, who could then be plundered. This was more difficult in the north as it didn't quite have the big civilizations like in the south. If riches were to be found in North America, it would need to be the Europeans themselves who found it. 
many English men looked at the plunder by the Catholic powers in the South as acts of barbarism and cruelty, and thought that with their Protestant ethics they could do a far better job of colonising. On the eve of English colonisation of America, there was much writing, at least a lot for the time, about what English colonisation could look like. Richard Hathloyd, an English writer who spent much of his life promoting the idea of an English New World, wrote about how hard Spanish colonisation and conversion of the natives had been. However, much of his writing was about how great the use of America could be for trade. North America had a huge amount of unclaimed land, on a similar latitude to the entirety of the European continent. From the Mediterranean in the south to Scandinavia in the north, the continent of North America was blessed with rich, fertile, diverse soils. Hakloit thought America could be used to supply England with every commodity it needed, making Britain itself economically self-sufficient away from Europe a Brexiter ahead of his time. Products that were grown from the Levant to Muscovy could all be grown and produced in America. Of course, if gold was found too, that was an added bonus. From the very start, the English looked to North America for its commerce potential, not merely an extraction of minerals. Obviously, this was not out of the goodness of the heart of the English people, as Hakloit said, the aim was to, quote, enlarge the revenues of the crown very mightily and enrich all sorts of subjects, close quotes. As we see here, while the Spanish were happy with extracting any sort of wealth possible from its colonies, England had a different idea. Hakloit continued by saying that England was full with, quote, swarming lusty youths that be turned to profitable use, close quotes. In short, they could be moved to America, which would need, quote-unquote, all sorts and states of men. Almost as an afterthought, Hakloit said that England could, too, be used as a religious refuge. Two things happened around the same time that Hakloit was writing. There were new religious tensions and the rise of commerce, with the expansion of trade and new forms of consumerism. New religious fervour and divisions opened up by the Reformation, and it was opening up and creating new and diverse religious groups. North America had a smaller population in Native Americans than Hispanic America, and fewer Europeans. As the English went over to America, they found the Chesapeake natives didn't have much they wanted. So the idea of turning the eastern seaboard of America into a trading station was not going to work. A new plan was needed. As a result, the Virginia Company turned to England for labourers. In the next century and a half, this new land offered fertile soil and many such attempts at colonisation. There were many different experiments in the early American colonies, from economic to religious experiments, and so many people went over to try out this new land. The new colonies did not solve all of England's problems, and many who went over never made it rich. Many died early from one of the many diseases, or never made it out of servitude and dependency. But some did. One thing that did at least stick about English America, 
in comparison to the old world was it offered exceptional scope for individual ambition. Throughout the 17th century, many in North Europe looked upon North America as a barren space upon which they could design a better Europe. The American utopia most often failed. Only Puritan New England, under the watch of William Penn, could be considered a success. This didn't stop thousands of people from England, Netherlands and France from continuing to make the perilous journey across the Atlantic. By 1700, and North America was still a backwater compared to Europe and even South America. Even the most developed places in America were simple, rustic, crude, and reminiscent of a Europe during the Middle Ages. There were several small seaports, only the most generous were described as cities in the European sense, while most other settlements were hamlets. Over the next 75 years, however, North America was to explode economically. That America was to explode economically during this time was not a formality. North America and England were faced with many problems. The fragility of English political recovery following the Glorious Revolution, the undefined nature of the relationship between colony and master, Native American resistance, wars against Spain and France, the political and religious discourse in North America, and the rampant piracy on the North American seaboard, which was the most economically prosperous place in North America. There were also many military contests between colonies. However, the American landscape, with its cheap and fertile and plentiful land, was still enticing. You could buy 10 or 20 times the land in America as in England for the same price. With the informal nature of the colonies, the governments in each colony was minuscule too. Per capita prosperity was high compared to Europe, and there was little need for governmental poor relief. And with no established churches, there were no tithes, and with Britain looking after defence, there was no taxes needed to raise armies. Taxes were therefore minuscule, and with the extreme fertility of the soil, wages were very high. In what could either be considered advertisement or propaganda, around the turn of the 18th century, there was a huge promotional campaign to try and bring people to the American colonies. With the conclusion of the Treaty of Utrecht in 1713, there was a quarter of century of peace for the British Empire, with, perhaps coincidentally, a long peace with the Native Americans too. From 1713 to 1740, the colonies had a sustained period of growth. In 1713, the two largest settlements were the ones around Chesapeake Bay and another in the coastal regions in southern New England. Over the next 25 years, this fanned out, so there was one long, continuous settlement from North Carolina to Maine in the north. From 1711 to 1740, the number of people of European extraction in the American colonies grew from 189,162 to 753,621. While some of this can be ascribed to immigration, it was also natural growth largely due to the high productivity of American agriculture which kept birth rates high 
and infant mortality down. The black population grew too. After a halting growth, the slave trade grew during this period, from 44,000 slaves in 1710 to 150,000 slaves in 1740. This resulted in a huge growth in exports to the Old World. Exports to England grew from £265,000 in 1701 to 1710 to £667,000 in 1731 to 1740. Imports also grew, showing the increased economic power of the American colonies. At this point it created a circle of prosperity. More and more investment was put into this economic machine that had been created. The black population grew too, from 150,000 in 1740 to 445,000 in 1770. While most of this growth was imported slaves rather than natural population growth, it showed the increased capital investments by slave owners and businessmen. As land started to be eaten up, people moved into cities, and these cities too started to see a decent level of growth. In the second most important event of 1776, the publication of Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, it was noted there had been great progress in all European colonies in wealth and population, but, quote, no colonies of which the progress has been more rapid than that of the English in North America, close quotes. So by around 1775, where are we? America has seen 50 years of perhaps the most rapid economic growth in history, which Adam Smith put down to the cheapness of good land and the higher wages, leading to a spur of individual liberty as the vehicle for expansion and the growth of independent producers. The openness of the land, unlike England, meant there was no restriction on forest use and no landed aristocracy. America was open. The low taxation created even more individual wealth. Far from being a land of unequal wealth like modern-day America, during the colonial period it was really a relatively level playing field, assuming you're white of course. Britain during the 18th century had a lot of wealth of course, but it wasn't distributed equally. The result of a large land-owning population especially compared to its overall population, compared to Britain and their relative wealth, resulted in, according to the British Under Secretary of State for the Colonies, that the Americans rejected, quote, all ideas of dependence, close quotes. Unlike in the old world, there was no relationship between landlord and tenant. What Knox saw amongst the people was a people tinted with republicanism. While Smith said the Americans were more republic than those in metropolitan Britain. However, these republican ideals were rooted in the cities in America, which was not a large part of the population. Members of the American urban life did not shrink from expressing their opinion on public issues, and were by no means overawed by authority. But the vast majority seemed to have been too consumed by their own private family concerns to seek an active role in public life. As long as no effort was made to deprive them, many Americans would have been content with their lives. 
With the relatively idyllic nature of American colonial life, many started to tour the old world and saw the levels of poverty in the British Isles contrasted with the levels of wealth in America, which meant that according to Benjamin Franklin, there was no happier country than America. This, of course, gave many Americans, or really British subjects living in the colonies, a sense of pride in how well off their own place was compared to Europe. Such was the growth in North America that Franklin believed in a century there would be more Englishmen in America than in Britain. During the 1750s, Franklin was saying that within two centuries, quote, the British colonies would overspread this immense territory, carrying with them the religion of Protestants, the laws, customs, manners, and language of the country from whence they sprung, close quotes. At that point, Franklin said, quote, the seat of the empire would naturally remove itself to America, close quotes. By the time many second and third generation colonists began to enter public life, there was a perceived change. They saw a difference between the old world and the new. As the old and new world clashed, many in the new world saw a level of condescension and had a sense of inferiority towards the old. The reliance in authority to the colonial master saw an inability for the new world to create their own identity. A generation shift from Franklin's statement in the 1750s to a generation later in 1765, when Adam Smith reported that the British had, quote, expectation of a rupture with the colonies, close quotes, and that the prospect of a rupture, quote, struck the people of Great Britain with more terror than they ever felt for a Spanish armada or French invasion, close quotes. However, the invention of America was not really born out of any act by the British. Historian Daniel Leonard had said there had never been a rebellion with so, quote, little real cause, close quotes. And Peter Oliver said, quote, the most wanton and unnatural rebellion that ever existed. The American Revolution, in reality, in the words of Moses Coit Tyler, quote, preeminently a revolution caused by ideas and pivoted on an idea, close quotes. Before the American Revolution took place, there was a slow shift towards looking at the envy of the Republican Roman model. This was not an obvious place to find the answers for how to govern yourself. England itself had failed with its brief experiment with republicanism, while the other contemporary republican models were Swiss cantons, Italian city-states and Dutch provinces, and were unlikely models for the large populace of the West and Atlantic worlds. The only successful true republic to envy was that of Rome. As we've talked about, republican values did not supplant monarchy, but the writings of Republican thinkers since antiquity, with the addition of Renaissance and Enlightenment thinkers, began to eat away at the idea of monarchy. In England, the classical Republicans were admired, but contemporary English writers managed to mix these Republican ideas with monarchism. In America, as time went by, these Republican values slowly got removed from the monarchic tradition. 
The Boston Tea Party was a truly momentous event. It created the Colonists versus Parliament. The British shut down Boston Harbour, suspended the Massachusetts government, and generally took over the colony. In September 1774, every colony except Georgia gathered at a Continental Congress. Would they side with Boston or the British? The Congress, of course, unanimously supported the colonists. Events escalated on both sides, until in 1775 the relations were destroyed. The king proclaimed all colonies to be in a state of rebellion. There was to be no coming together for the colonists and the British. With this, many of the colonies sent their delegates to vote for independence. The Congress appointed John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, Roger Sherman, and Robert Livingston to draft a declaration. The declaration was, of course, one of the most famous documents ever written. Congress voted on the 2nd of July for independence, and two days later it adopted the Declaration of Independence. The document is titled, quote, A Declaration by the Representatives of the United States of America in General Congress Assembled. The first time the words the United States of America had appeared in print. The first step to inventing America was its constitution. The writers of the constitutions were still effectively Englishmen and believed that England had been corrupted during the 18th century but that they still inherited Britain's freedom and liberty. In creating the constitution they wanted to avoid the English corruption as they saw it. In creating the constitution they created the framework for the start of this new country with its own traditions and practices. The fact that the American rights were fixed meant they couldn't be trampled over like they could be in England. While democracy was a Greek invention, it was the Americans and English who modernised it. While direct democracy may have only been possible in Greek polities of 30,000 people, and mostly in towns or city-states, in a country of a far larger geography and populations, it was the English who invented representative democracy. But it was the Americans who pushed it towards actual representation, rather than just a vague notion. The American system was hardly democratic by modern-day standards, but compared to the rest of the world, it was a beacon. With the American Revolution, America would have to, in the style of one of those awful self-help books, it would have to find itself. As it was a complete construction of a new nation and peoples, America would need to be built by intellectuals into giving this new nation some meaning. Perhaps the most important person at this time was English radical Thomas Paine. Paine wrote perhaps the most important pamphlet of all time, Common Sense, in 1776, in which he told his readers that America was in every way superior to the old world he'd just left. He said that the extensive space and opportunity America offered him provided, quote, so many openings to happiness, close quotes. Whereas Europe has numerous classes of poor and wretched people, America did not. In Common Sense, Payne continues this tribute to America. 
Because it happened so long ago, at the start of the American experiment, we think of Paine's writing now as a piece of political writing. And now, when an English celebrity goes over to the United States and says these sort of things, the British thinks of them as suck-ups. But there is some truth to it. The vision of America in common sense said America would have first place in the unfolding course of human history. In perhaps the most famous passage in Common Sense, Paine says, quote, Freedom hath been hunted around the globe. Asia and Africa have long expelled her. Europe regards her like a stranger, and England hath given her warning to depart. Had it not been for America, there had been no such thing as freedom left throughout the whole universe. Paine continued this proclamation of American virtue through the rest of his life. When he published The Rights of Man in France in 1792, he begged his French hosts to learn from the American Revolution. Paine's message as a writer was that the world could be changed for the better, and people liberated from the tyranny of ancient prejudices. And the primary model that gave shape and credibility to that message was America. Paine was militant and persistent in trying to use the experience of the new world to reshape the old. Paine played a significant role in extending the concept of America as an exceptional socio-political entity, and in elaborating the idea that America represented the future, and could be a model of emulation for Europe and the world. Indeed, Many intellectuals at the time, such as Arthur Shipps, proclaimed, quote, America as the standard of reform, close quotes. These ideals went to France too. Many French writers in the 1780s were declaring the American Revolution as the next step in mankind and other such superlatives. For much of its history, the New World was valued for its gold, silver, sugar, tobacco, rice, wheat, fish and other products that could only be judged by what could be sent back to the Old World. But now they were celebrated because the United States represented quote, an immediate application of the most controversial social and political ideals under discussion in Europe. The colonies became living and heartening proof that men had a capacity for growth, that reason and humanity could become governing rather than merely critical principles." The invention of American culture and society comes after its independence. Paine argued that effectively American culture should be defined by what separates it from European society. Its simplicity, its newness, its rusticity and its innocence. With this, Americans viewed themselves as a laboratory for enlightenment ideals and a workshop for liberty. To American writers engaged in the process of constructing and identifying America, the United States seemed to be a society in which opportunity, freedom, equality, and individual autonomy were leading features. American exceptionalism rests on two propositions. The idea that America was an exempt nation, that it had been freed from the laws of decadence and the laws of history. America was born modern, 
without a deeply entrenched traditional socio-economic and political structure, and didn't need to go through the overhauls to modernity that other nations needed. The second proposition was that America thought of itself as a superior nation to all others. But while America may have thought of itself as superior, simple demographics and the need to tame the wilderness of the American landscape meant that this would take until the 20th century to be realised. To be a great invention, America needed a legacy, and it needed to make its mark on the world. For this to fully take effect, it would take around 100 years after independence for the world to take that note. The impact of the so-called American century, born out of these ideas of free enterprise, republican virtues and liberty, resulted in the most dominant polity in human history. The idea that any person is worthy and can produce great things was never before possible. Even in Britain, the United States' forerunner had a heavily aristocratic and old-fashioned view of itself. Of course, the American dream, as it was labelled, was not possible for all. American literature is littered with comments on the American dream, from the Great Gatsby to Death of a Salesman, yet for some it was possible. And even if not everybody became Edison, Tesla or Henry Ford, America still offered the best quality of life ever seen. So where to mark the start of the American century? You could start with 1900, but as historiography likes to label periods around events rather than neat dates, I am going to start with 1889. It sees the arrival of the Kodak camera. As we'll see in a later episode, it was an ingenious invention and showed the world what America can offer. It brought an idea developed in Europe and brought it to the mass market. Democratising inventions is one of the American people's greatest legacies. So where does the American century end? It doesn't have to be exactly 100 years. The long 19th century lasted from 1789 to 1914. The American century, it could be argued, could have lasted from 1889 to September 2001 the 20th of March 2003, or even to the 2020s and the rise of China. But I am going to stop at 1989 with the fall of the Berlin Wall, after which the world shifted towards a more multipolar world. 1989 saw the victory of American values, and that was what the American Revolution had all been about. The remarkable thing about America's success is that it wasn't guaranteed. In 1889, at the start of the American century, Rudyard Kipling, on a tour of the country, wrote that it was an archipelago of warring tribes that was bound to break up as the country fought for the last of its natural resources. When H.G. Wells visited Theodore Roosevelt in the White House in 1905, he asked, quote, does this magnificent appearance of beginnings, which is America, convey any clear and certain promise of permanence and fulfilment, whatever? Is America a giant childhood or a giant futility? 
close quotes. Roosevelt clenched his fists and said, quote, the effort, the effort's worth it, close quotes. So where is America in 1889? The first skyscraper was being built. The Statue of Liberty was three years old. The old rural America was giving away to the modernity of the city. The Transcontinental Railroad had put 55 million Americans at the mercy of American mass production. America was moving from a country to a continent-sized nation. 86% of property in America belonged to 12% of families. But an unskilled immigrant from Italy could earn one year's wage in just three months in this new land. Many British observers, such as historian James Bryce, states that he was struck democracy had taught Americans how to use liberty. He was struck by the lack of relative absence of class or caste to obstruct the rise of merit, though clearly he didn't meet many black people. In 1889, Britain had the largest navy. It was the world's banker, insurance broker, commodity dealer, and the leading investor and cultural leader of the world. British businessmen even owned the most profitable American mines. A century later, America would surpass Britain and overtake it to an extent many could never have foreseen. In 1898, the United States had only 28,000 in its army, yet this was not to last. In 1898, the Spanish-American War started. In 1900, American troops were sent to restore order in China and interventions in the Dominican Republic, Nicaragua and Haiti. And in 1906, Roosevelt intervened in the most important world event in the pre-First World War years, the Russo-Japanese War. After the Spanish-American War, there was a tie in the Senate about what to do with the Philippines. Vice President Garrett Augustus Hobart cast the tie to make the United States now an industrial power. The Americans decided to annex the Philippines. The US added them to Puerto Rico, Guam, the Panama Canal and the Virgin Islands. But does this mean that America was now an imperial power to rival the old world? No. America could have become a second Britain and started to build an actual old-world-style empire. And there was much support of this idea in the Senate. They turned down the chance to become this imperial style. First, and perhaps the foremost reason, was because Britain was an empire, and the United States did not need an empire. There was more than enough people in the US for capitalists to sell their goods to. There was also a much organised opposition movement to American imperialism. The anti-imperialist league had many powerful members, including former presidents and Andrew Carnegie. And of course, there was the lingering knowledge that the US had been formed as a reaction against empire. America would therefore become an empire of ideas and capital, rather than a pure military one. The turn of the century really saw American growth reach heights never seen before. This growth would signal the beginning of the American century. In the 1880s, 
the British moneyed classes were still more numerous than their American equivalents. But this was soon to change. Names like Carnegie, Vanderbilt and Rockefeller are the most famous, but they were only the cream of the American capitalist system. Theodore Roosevelt was soon to break up the huge corporations existing in the US, but the huge growth was not going to stop. If anything, it only increased the pace of American growth. During this period, the increase in economic power was due, partly, to the huge numbers now coming into the country. Between 1900 and 1910, 9 million people came into the country. The entire population of the country in 1820. Very few spoke English. Chicago, which had a population of 1 million in the 1880s, was a mere frontier post 50 years before. Of course, the remarkable nature of America was not that 9 million people came to it in 10 years, but that they learned English, worked hard, and kept faith in what America was about. Its ideals led them to believe in America, even as they faced much discrimination. On the 27th of August 1900, in Havana, a mosquito-carrying yellow fever fed on army surgeon James Carroll, and he fell sick with a disease. Dr. Carroll had set out to test the theory that yellow fever came from a mosquito bite. Carroll just about survived, but his colleague, Dr. Jesse William Lazar, died a month later. Yellow fever had killed one-third of the French workforce that had tried to build the Panama Canal in 1881 to 1889. After the confirmation that yellow fever was caused by mosquitoes, led Major William Crawford Gorgas to rid Havana of all standing fresh water. Only a year later, in 1901, there was not a single case of yellow fever. The result was that the Panama Canal could actually now be finished, as Gorgas's standards of sanitation were followed. It's hard to imagine any other country being able to pull off this type of event. Both the scientific curiosity to find the reason behind the deaths, and then the capital and enterprise to build the Panama Canal. It began a period of America, for the first time, starting to look overseas. In 1907, Theodore Roosevelt sent the entire US fleet on a 46,000 mile voyage around the world. The sailing of the fleet from Hampton Roads in December 1907 was seen by many as the date America became a great power. With the outbreak of the First World War in 1914, there was little appetite for America to join the war. But even still, America's power at the start of the First World War was there for all to see. By 1916, US trade was only at $1 million. With the Allies, it was $3,124 million. Much of this was because Britain and France didn't have the same armament capabilities as Germany, and so had to import them. This led to conspiracies that Woodrow Wilson was pushed into declaring war on Germany to keep the bankers and munition makers happy. These munitions had to be transported to the Allies across the open ocean, and there were many laws regarding what could be seized, sunk, or had to be ignored. 
In February 1915, the Kaiser casually nodded to the proposal that any area around Britain should be declared a war zone, and any enemy or neutral ship could be sunk when entering it. On May 7, 1915, the Lusitania was sunk, with 128 Americans dying in the process. America was not automatically going to support Britain during the war. Many Irish Americans hated Britain, especially after the put-down of the Easter Rising in 1916. Wilson tried to find common ground, and tried to arrange a peace conference with an association of democratic nations. However, on the 31st of January 1917, Germany said it would sink any ships in the zone around Britain, and that the Kaiser would only allow one passenger ship in Britain each week as long as it followed a very strict course. Nobody infringed on American liberty like this. This incident and the Zimmerman telegram resulted in America joining the war. In the declaration, Wilson stated, quote, The world must be made safe for democracy. Close quotes. America was starting to see its own potential. The United States did not win the First World War, but their joining at the time the Russians left resulted in the war being a certainty. Yet without America's industrial might and vast reserves of industrial power, the Allies might never have gotten to 1917. Surely now was America's time to start leading the world. With the surrender of Germany, Americans' lack of war weariness meant it would become the leader of the three great victorious powers. Wilson's idealism rooted around America's values became a beacon of hope in a war-damaged continent. 60 million pamphlets were scattered around the world containing Wilson's 14 points of how the world should be reorganised. Many of these are reminiscent of America's founding fathers' own values. Removal of trade barriers, anti-imperialism, freedom of the seas, self-determination, and the formation of a League of Nations. America, of course, never joined its own invention, the League of Nations. Despite constant public support and a tour to rally support for the League, Congress voted not to join in a mix of basic politicking and isolationism. America could have led the world from 1919, but it chose not to. The world needed America as much as America needed the world. But within a few years of the First World War, and it looked like America didn't need the world. Bursts of invention and productivity, scientific progress, a huge stock market rise, and a huge amount of investment capital that, within a few years after the war, meant the United States was producing more than the next six great powers combined. The economy was growing at 6% a year, and in 1929, 43.3% of the world's manufacturers were American. America saw the growth during this period of roads, telephones, radios, refrigerators, and washing machines. There is a conflict in the study of the American presidency called the transformational leader theory. It asks the question of just how important the US president really is, and whether he can enact a great change on the country. My view is that Theodore Roosevelt was that great transformational leader, 
but President Warren Harding, who oversaw this incredible rise, had little to do with it. The rise was down to the entrepreneurship of the American people, which was perpetuated by the government's commitment to laissez-faire economics and an egalitarian and inclusive democracy, assuming you are white, of course. During this time, America began to develop what we would now call the seeds of its culture, jazz, the movies, musical theatre and the skyscraper. However, I think we all know why the 1920s is so fascinating to so many. We all know what comes next. Economics is called the dismal science, and due to these dismal scientists, we don't really know what the cause of the Great Depression was. Economics is known to be very difficult to study. The Wall Street crash was only the start and not the cause of the Depression. It wasn't Gavrilo Principe alone that caused the First World War. There had been crashes before and after 1929, but none have quite decimated the world economy as much as the Great Depression. What is known is that America had let its banking system become ever more reckless, and the amount of debt individuals had was large. Millions had stocks, and millions had borrowed money to buy these stocks. Creditors lost faith in the system, and the government did nothing. It shows the power of the United States as economy that the rest of the world soon followed it into depression. The Second World War was also no individual country's fault. It was a tragedy that lay in moral cowardice and a misunderstanding of what was happening in Germany, Japan and Italy. It resulted in perhaps the second greatest tragedy in mankind's history, with the First World War being the first. America was partly to blame. Its isolationism in the 1920s and 30s, and Britain and France's reluctance to lead, showed that blame should be apportioned around. It wasn't just Britain that appeased fascism, America too. In economic terms, it continued to trade with authoritarian regimes. Any of these great powers, in small combinations, could have halted the rise of these countries and their fascist dictatorships, way before they ever got strong enough to pose a serious threat. It is Britain's, it is France's and the Soviet Union's and America's responsibility combined, not just the Axis powers, that this war ever became as serious as it became. The reasons for American isolationism was built into its foundation. It was a new world power, not supposed to be dealing with old world problems like that of war. America was isolationist because it could be. A huge population and perhaps the most impossible country to attack, Lincoln once said as a young man, quote, All the armies of Europe, Asia and Africa, with all the treasures of the earth, and with a Bonaparte for a commander, could not by force take a drink from the Ohio, or make a track on the Blue Ridge Trail of a thousand years, close quotes. This was basically America's reasoning for its lack of interest in the world. To many of the people of America, Europe was a far-off place. It was alien and different. Furthermore, Europe's inability to repay its First World War debts left a bitter taste in the mouth. However, as war broke out and Britain very quickly stood alone in Europe, the American people started to realise 
what letting Hitler win would mean. In May 1941, 73% of Americans were in favour of joining Britain in the fight. December 6, 1941, and the Japanese embassy in Washington receives a coded message. The American spooks intercepted and decoded 8 out of the 13 parts of the message before going on a party. Soon after, the Japanese consulate starts burning its papers. This was commented on, but nobody was concerned. In Hawaii, the FBI tapped into a suspicious call from a Tokyo journalist asking a Japanese-American woman about the number of sailors and planes around Pearl Harbor. We all know what happens next. Two waves of Japanese attacks bomb the US fleet at Pearl Harbor. Japanese Imperial Headquarters announces there is a state of war between Japan, the United States and the British Empire. December 7th is the day that will live in infamy. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. And it brings the United States into the war, forever changing the balance of power in the world, and bringing America to its natural place at the forefront of the democratic free world. People knew America was a powerhouse, but I don't think anybody could have guessed just how strong it was. Between 1940 and 1943, output doubled in Germany and Russia, trebled in Britain and quadrupled in Japan. Have a guess at the US statistic. America produced 25 times as much output in 1943 as it had in 1940. The war gave the opportunity for free peoples the chance to show what they could do. Had the Western powers lost the Second World War, the world would have fallen as we knew it. Jews, Gypsies, Slavs, Poles, the Chinese, the Filipinos and the Koreans could all have been exterminated, while Africa, Arabia and India would have been unsafe. The rest of the world's peoples would have likely fallen into second-class citizens at best. It would be wrong to say that democracy won the Second World War. Stalin's regime probably did more than any other single power to win. But Hitler's crucial mistake was to believe he could outproduce America. America sent the Red Army 13 million boots, two-thirds of its vehicles, five million tons of food. However, even during the war, most American civil liberties remained in place. It showed the power of the idea of the US. Had Japan or Germany been more tolerant, they might have been able to raise armies from occupied territories. Britain managed to rouse allies all over the empire and bring volunteers. America was able to raise soldiers from its hugely diverse population, including the unequal black population. Black heavyweight champion Joe Lewis once said, quote, There is a lot wrong with America. Hitler isn't the answer. Close quotes. The US and the Allies won the war. The US was vital in ending it. Its production capacity was certainly the key turning point in its war with Japan. 
Admiral Yamamoto knew this to be true. He predicted before the start of hostilities that Japan's only hope would be to overwhelm the US before the automobile factories in Detroit and the oil fields of Texas started to pump the materials needed. Added to this was the victory of American technology. There was no reason why Germany couldn't have kept this edge as they had at the start of the war. But free peoples will also be more productive. And it also didn't help that Germany kicked out many of the genius Jews it had in its territory. When the Japanese went aboard the USS Missouri to surrender, they were shocked by the even-handedness of the Americans. General Toroshiba Kawabe reflected when meeting the Americans that he had just had contact with, quote-unquote, a truly great cultural nation. The Soviets won the war, but the Americans won the peace. At the end of the Second World War, America was the world's paramount leader. It could have done anything. It could have annexed most of Western Europe, like the Soviets did with the East. America could have done as it liked. What America did was turn everywhere it touched into a democracy. America was not to make the same mistakes as it did in 1919. It founded and joined the United Nations. America rebuilt the Germans under the Marshall Plan. With the Korean War, America kick-started the Japanese post-war recovery, and Americans taught their former enemies the secrets of mass production. While the communist world was busy locking up dissidents, the Americans dismantled the Japanese secret police and freed communists from prison. America gave West Germany and Japan free speech and democracy. Cynics may say America was merely trying to provide consumers for its products, and America itself was pursuing its self-interest. But why not? America's guiding principles meant its self-interest was in the interests of a people of conquered nations too. America's rebuilding of Western Europe was immense. With $150 billion in today's money, it resulted in the summer of 1951 of industrial production reaching levels of 43% above the pre-war marker. We've seen America make history over and over again with its prosperity, and the post-war period saw that too. National output doubled between 1946 and 1956, and again by 1970. Personal incomes tripled between 1940 and 1955. Two cars, a television, and as much food as you could eat. America had 6% of the world's population, but consumed one-third of the world's goods and services, and it made up two-thirds of the world's manufactured goods. With West Europe and South Asia saved, it was the menace of communism that now haunted America. America may have gone a little over the top with regards to the threat of communism at home, with the pound shop Robespierre, Joe McCarthy, spreading fear. Much of American foreign policy at the time was focused on defending Western values of democracy against communism. So you might have thought it would let small issues with its allies fade into the background. But during the Suez Crisis, America stood up for its own anti-imperialism against its two closest allies, France and Britain, as they tried to impose their colonial attitudes back on the newly resurgent Egyptians. 
The result was the confirmation of American supremacy in the Western Alliance and the imposition on all of a rules-based international order. However, it looked by the time of the mid-1970s that communism and forces against the West might be starting to turn the tide. America's war in Vietnam, it has been said, was fought to stop Hitler taking Czechoslovakia. Nobody wanted the war in the former French Indochina, but the idea that Southeast Asia might fall to communism was a step too far, and so America got itself stuck in that war. America's misunderstanding was that Ho Chi Minh was a nationalist first and a communist second. The war pitted America against itself. It pitted anti-communism against anti-imperialism. The 1973 oil shock led to the realisation that America was now importing a lot of oil. The America of 1950, which imported no oil, was a long way off. In 1973, America imported 35% of oil, and in 1977, it was nearly half. The oil cartel OPEC delivered a second oil shock and doubled the price of oil overnight. Oil was 150 a barrel in 1970, and in 1977, it was $32 a barrel. Billions left Western economies, and inflation soared while wages fell. As a response, interest rates went up 20%, while unemployment reached double digits in many areas. This all led to a new word to define the misery. The Iran hostage crisis further dented American prestige. But in the 1980s, America was to bounce back. Reagan's revolution wasn't new. America had seen an increase in wealth, especially towards the top of the socio-economic pyramid during the Gilded Age, the mid-1870s to 1890s, and then the Roaring Twenties. The boost the 1980s gave the American economy led the decade to end with one of the greatest events in the 20th century. In 1989, with the American economy still flourishing, the Soviet one collapsed. All the while, the Soviet leadership seemed to have lost its bottle. On June the 4th, 1989, Poland voted for an anti-communist coalition. October the 7th, and Hungary renounced communism. October the 18th, and East Germany's leader resigned. The global triumph of liberal democracy was the pinnacle of the American century. The fall of the Soviet Empire meant the result was a victory for capitalism over communism. Despite America's well-known problems, America enjoyed more happiness and more liberty than any other society in the 5,000 years or so of organised society. In 1900, an American of taste was a European in exile. Today it is almost reversed. The American model is copied and replicated wherever there is free enterprise to do so. It used to be the Roman Empire people used to copy, and then the British. Now it is America. America is not an imperial power, but it is an imperial civilization. It is almost parasitic in the best possible way. Americana latches onto anything it can, blending the old culture into a more American one. Travel the world and you'll see Abu Dhabi, Americana with some Arab influence. Israel is a high-tech and muscular America. 
Shanghai is a Chinese version of Americana. Go to Bradford where I grew up and you will see British Muslims listening to Tupac and Biggie Smalls. Go to South America or Iran and people will be listening to American rock and American metal. Such has been the power of America that we no longer talk about European civilization. At the Paris Peace Conference there was much talk about it, with American culture as some kind of offshoot. Now we talk about how everything is Americanized. Europe is almost seen as the offshoot to America in the grand scheme of the West. America won the peace after the Second World War because of its culture. Nylon, chewing gum, hot dogs, Grace Kelly, Marilyn Monroe's cleavage. People looked at Marilyn Monroe's cleavage and its freedom and thought this was the kind of civilization they wanted to live in, not the dour Soviet one. America is the leader of the world, not because of 2,000 military installations in five continents, but the 35,000 McDonald's in 119 countries. Perhaps the American Golden Age is coming to an end, but there could still be a Silver Age. So at what point can we claim the world became American? Simone Weil dates it to 1943, but its antecedents can be seen before and after this. America not only has hard power projection, but its ability to project soft power. The ability to project its culture is far more than Europe ever managed. The American Civil War was genuinely the first photographic conflict, and an offshoot of cinema made many icons all over the world. Most of the greatest television and film stars have all been American. Today, how many of the most famous YouTubers are also American? In 1945, 55% of the French said the USSR was the most responsible for the defeat of Germany in the Second World War. In 2004, the same poll was taken and the results were exactly reversed. The power of Hollywood. American cultural power is due to the power of its own foundations of equality. Of course, the sheer economic power helps too, but American culture is mass culture. In Europe, there is still a divide between high and low culture. Britain flirted during its own reign with mass popular culture. Charles Dickens and the great Victorian novelists spring to mind. But the movie, that very American invention, is both high and low art. When I think of European culture, it's a divide between football, trash TV and Eurovision on the low end, and then European philosophy, art, opera and orchestras on the high end. America has the musical, which can be enjoyed by rich and poor alike. It has TV and movies. Even its sports seem more egalitarian. When Barack Obama says he's a fan of the Chicago Bulls, you can believe him. When David Cameron says his favourite football team is Aston Villa, or is it West Ham, or perhaps Eton FC, you think it's been focus grouped so a posh boy from Eton can pick the least offensive team to support, to make himself seem more electable. In the name of trying to promote freedom, America has done some pretty despicable things. The coup in Guatemala and Iran in the 1950s, its attitude towards Cuba, the wars in Vietnam, Afghanistan and Iraq, the support of right-wing authoritarians to ward off communists is just to name a few. But America has given the world peace. 
The so-called Pax Americana, lasting American peace, has given the world, henceforth, unseen peace and prosperity. America is at the forefront of increasing the prosperity of the world. Much of this has been done through their organisation, the United Nations, which was originally an American invention and has now been taken over by the world at large. American inventors have given us everything from the birth control pill, a proliferation of labour-saving devices, mass production, smartphones, the internet and many more. But the main thing we should be thankful for is American ideas of liberty and liberal democracy. Britain may have still been a democracy without America, but the world would not be anywhere near as democratic without American support. The world should be grateful for America's existence and for its dedication to its own values, origins and foundation myths. And so for that reason, America is listed at number 74 on my list of the greatest inventions of all.